Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean? good music. It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home. Did you have a band? Good or bad? It's a great band. It's a bad band. It's like pizza, baby. It's good no matter what. There's music in the air. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today in the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I welcome Rivers Cuomo of Weezer for a -a one-of-a-kind live performance. And later on, Greg and I will review the new album from Art Rocker's Yaysayer. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. Mississippi Delta was shining like a national guitar. I am following the river down the highway through the cradle of the Civil War. I'm going to Graceland, Graceland, to Memphis, Tennessee. I'm going to Graceland. That is Paul Simon's Graceland, uh, an appropriate title for an album that just made the Vatican's top ten list. Jim. When we do the news stories and uh, sound opinions, we don't often fall upon the Vatican or the Catholic Church making any kind of pronouncements on pop music. This might be a first. Except perhaps to criticize it. In this case, they are enthusiastically endorsing certain rock albums over the last few decades, saying these are the records we jam to. Their top record of all time, according to the Vatican's official newspaper, is the Beatles' Revolver. They also had Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon on there. They had Carlos Santana's Supernatural, Paul Simon's Graceland, we mentioned, Fleetwood Mac's Rumors, as well as a Donald Fagan solo album. The other interesting thing about the Vatican Top Ten list is that they go out of their way to exclude Bob Dylan and to diss him, basically saying we don't really have anything against Bob, but the generation of singer-songwriters that he allegedly inspired, who have tested the ears and patience of listeners, thinking that their tortured meanderings might interest somebody. See, everybody's a critic. What I want to know, though, is this Vatican Top Ten Rock Albums of All Time list, did it come down on two big tablets? Now, there's a song they don't play in the Vatican, Greg. That is Stinking Drunk by Big Black from its 1986 album, Atomizer. was uh, engineered by a man named Ian Burgess, who just died. Burgess is not a household name, but he's one of those kind of people that, that run through rock history where huge stretches of, of great music would not be possible without his input. Based in Chicago in the mid-80s, but also working with bands from Madison and Milwaukee and downstate Illinois and Minneapolis, basically anybody that was kind of aggressive and arty and punk in the mid-80s through the early 90s recorded with Ian 
Burgess. The list is incredible. Naked Raygun, Big Black, but then other bands like the Poster Children and the Cows from Minneapolis and Bloodsport and Jawbox. He really patented a sound. It was in your face. It was simple. It was bare bones, as if the band was live in your living room, but bigger than that would even sound, <laughs> and yet very melodic. That, of course, is a formula that would explode with other bands like Nirvana. And Steve Albini probably was his most famous student. Albini called him a mentor. He learned how to record bands and would go on to, you know, work with everybody from Jimmy Page and Robert Plant to Nirvana, but learned at the foot of this guy, Ian Burgess. And he just died of a pulmonary embolism, a complication of pancreatic and liver cancer. I've been getting emails, uh, dozens of them, I know you have as well, from bands that work with this guy saying he should be remembered. Mm -hmm. So we want to pay tribute to Ian Burgess. This is a song from Naked Ray Gun's 1985 album, Throb Throb. It's called I Don't Know on Sound Opinions. by Naked Raygun from their 1985 album Throb Throb recorded by Ian Burgess who just passed away. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and next up we're going to have a discussion with the man who authored that song, A Rivers Cuomo of Weezer. That is, my name is Jonas, from Weezer's 1994 debut album that sold millions of copies at the height of the grunge era. He had bands like uh, Nirvana and Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, dominating the charts from the Pacific Northwest with this harder, heavier sound. And then along comes this California band led by Rivers Cuomo with this anthemic pop sound that sold millions of records and captivated the MTV generation with these witty videos that accompanied those songs. Rivers Cuomo has gone on to have a career that uh, extends to this very day. Uh, Weezer's still putting out albums. Their latest came out in 2009 called Ratitude. In between, Cuomo has released several solo projects that have documented his home recordings. One of the most prolific and well-known artists working today. Yeah, Greg, you know, we were lucky to have Rivers in in late 2009, just a couple of days before he had a bus accident while while traveling with the band, suffered a couple of cracked ribs, and Weezer had to cancel several weeks' worth of tour dates. Now the band's back on the road. Rivers is mended. When he was here, he was not playing with Weezer, however, but a Chicago group called the Kathy Santonis. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and Greg, I think, and all the years of doing this show, this is the uh, one of the most unique tapings we have ever done. It is the most unique taping we've ever done. We have Rivers Cuomo of Weezer here, and Rivers said, okay, I'm going to do it. Here's the deal, though. You're going to pair me up with a band of your choosing, and you're going to tell me which songs you'd like me to play. I feel like Phil Spector today. I do. We feel like producer. Yeah. So first of all, Rivers, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. It's great to be here. And uh, we have a wonderful band who you met all of about 20 minutes ago. They're the Kathy <laughs> Santonis, who are Mojo Santoni on uh, guitar and Jane Danger on guitar and Radio Santoni on bass and Kaylee Preston, who uh, has got a fever and a horrible cold, and she's here smashing away at the drums anyway. 
Welcome, Kathy Santonis. So, Rivers, what the heck are you doing here? What was this idea about? Well, um, I don't know. I just love to mix it up and try different things and play with different musicians from different backgrounds and put myself in uncomfortable situations and <laughs> and see what happens, live on the edge. And we did it last year with Weezer. We'd invite 100 to 200 Weezer fans down to the show, and they brought their instruments, whatever instruments they happen to have, and we had to make music with these people, and it was it was super invigorating for me. And then writing songs for Ratitude, I, I continued that spirit of collaboration and, and reached out to other musicians and songwriters and jammed with them and came up with some of the songs for the record. So I thought it would be fun to not only um, play with some musicians here I'd never met before, the Santonis, but also to involve you guys as producers and, and masterminds. <laughs> Masterminds. I love that word. I've never <laughs> been called a mastermind before. Thank you, Rivers. I appreciate that. That's the that. first time anyone's yeah. put that word exactly. next to our names. Yeah. Uh, exactly. You've talked recently about this whole idea that there has been a transformation in your approach to this sort of thing. A few years ago, you were talking about just being ultra shy and the shoegazer approach when you were on stage. In other words, it wasn't really a fun thing, it seemed like, for you to be there. And it seems like it's changed a lot for you in the last three or four years. What, what accounts for that? <laughs> I don't know. Um... I think just looking for kicks, and, and the more I come out of my shell and the more I try different things, the more fun I have. So it, it encourages me to keep trying. And not only that, but we've gotten good feedback from the crowd. Like, oh, that was the best Weezer show I ever saw. <laughs> so I'm having fun, and it's it's slowly, it's it's all coming out of me now, and I can't wait to see where it's going. Well, we have the band here set up to play, the Kathy Santonis, and we have Rivers here. You are not playing guitar. You're simply singing the lead vocals. The rest of the band is going to play their parts. To clarify for the listeners, the Santonis practiced, rehearsed on their own, and got ready for this gig. You literally heard them play for the first time 20 minutes ago. Yeah, we did a sound check. And we're going to sort of work our way through the songs that we've selected for you. So why don't we set up what we're going to play first here. I believe we have the Undone the Sweater song racked up first, right? That's right. This is actually the first song I wrote that ended up getting played by Weezer. It's essentially the first Weezer song ever written. Oh, so the ideal place to start.
everybody's got a big smile on their face. That's Rivers Cuomo playing for the first time uh, half an hour after meeting them with the Kathy Santonis. That's pretty good. So, so is this working for you, Rivers, this weird idea that you had? That was super fun. That, was, that sounded like fun. Huh? Uh, that that uh, seems closer in the origins. You've talked about referencing Metallica a little bit in that song. That seemed a little closer to those Metallica origins. Yeah. That. I didn't know it at the time. I was trying to write a Velvet Underground cool hipster type of song. I was transitioning out of being a metalhead, suddenly realized that I was <laughs> not cool and trying to be cool. And then years later, I realized that it was basically the riff to Sanitarium from Master of Puppets by <laughs> Well, one of the things that made me think that the Santonis would work was that uh, they described themselves as the ideal combination of riot girl and, you know, metal testosterone rock, as filtered through, like, the Runaways or Joan Jett. So I figured you would relate. I was feeling the things. testosterone. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> These girls have got more testosterone than I do, I'll yeah. tell you that. <laughs> We're going to take you through your career kind of chronologically, Rivers. You know, that album was such a breath of fresh air. Self-titled Weezer album, the blue album, as fans now call it, when it came on the scene in 94. Was it a reaction to what had come before? I mean, it was so not grunge Seattle, what was coming out of there. Yeah, I've just always had the personality that if I see a crowd of people doing one thing, I want to do the opposite thing. Mm. And at that time in L.A., 92... You know, everyone was jumping on the grunge bandwagon and getting dreadlocks and tattoos and nose rings and, and writing like these bluesy <laughs> grunge riffs. And it just made me want to run in the opposite direction. Got a clean cut hairdo and nice button down shirt and major key and nice melodies and songs about girls. How much of it was inspired by? I mean, I, I looked at that first cover before I ever played the Blue Album and I said, wow, you know, modern lovers, talking heads circa 77 the feelies yeah, you know even even that blue sky background we are who we are we're nerds and we're proud of it yeah it, interesting though i didn't i wasn't aware of any of those album covers mm. people started mentioning to them, them to me after the album came out but I, I wasn't influenced by them there was a particular picture of the beach boys that i was totally inspired by where they're wearing these matching striped shirts and they're they're all just sitting there really nicely together in front of a, a blue <laughs> mm. ba- background and I just thought that was so cool and, and anti-everything, and we had to do it. And I, I think people read a lot into the image and uh, also the videos, which were incredibly entertaining, hilarious. They assumed it was a lot of this music was sort of tongue-in-cheek. Did that bother you that the music may have been misinterpreted? Did people miss the message in some ways because they thought it was being ironic and humorous? Yeah, that's something Weezer has had to deal with from the first album right up to our current album, Ratitude, is that... I, I will write something from a sincere place. I'm trying to make a serious statement. And then everyone in the room starts laughing and say, <laughs> oh, he's being ironic. This is so funny. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I remember we finished the Blue Album, and I, I felt like it was the most amazing album. We were going to be taken very seriously, like the next Nirvana or something. And the guy from the record company took me out to lunch and said, you realize that people are going to think this album is really funny, and you guys are like this lighthearted, jokey type of band. And I was completely stunned and and disappointed Mm. and he was right that's how a lot of people took it and so i'm still grappling with that trying to understand what's going on here because there does seem to be this ironic element to weezer's music i can't deny it but at the same time i'm i'm trying to be serious and and there is a, a serious point underneath it all so i don't know what to make of it We're going to continue our interview with singer-songwriter Rivers Cuomo in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Plus, later in the show, Jim and I review the new album from indie rock quartet, Yaysayer.
Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, and my partner is Greg Cott. You're hearing a bit of El Scorcho by the band Weezer, and we're going to continue our conversation with Weezer's leader, Rivers Cuomo, in a minute. When Rivers came to the studio, he was joined not by Weezer, but by a Chicago band called the Kathy Santonis for a one-of-a-kind, completely unrehearsed live performance. Rivers began making music in a similar garage rock spirit and then achieved mainstream success with Weezer's 1994 self-titled album. As any musician knows, however, it is the second record, the sophomore effort, that is the hardest thing. For Weezer, it was Pinkerton in 1996. And here now to perform a track from that album is Rivers Cuomo and the Kathy Santonis. It's The Good Life, live on Sound Opinions. Look in the mirror I can't believe what I see Tell me who's that funky dude Staring back at me Broken, beaten down Can't even get around Without no man king Falling in the ground Shivering in the cold I'm bitter and alone Excuse the bitching I shouldn't complain I should have no feeling Feeling this pain Everything I want is taken away from me But who do I got to blame? Nobody but me And I don't want to be a no man anymore It's been a year or two since I was out on the floor Taking 40 minutes sweet love all the night
That was that was the good life from uh, Weezer's second album, Pinkerton. Uh, Rivers Cuomo on lead vocals. The Kathy Santoni's doing everything else. An unbelievable first take. <laughs> that's Talk when the producer goes, okay, yeah, I think we right. got something here. Spon- well, there's nothing ever like that first yeah. take. And we said, do you want to run through each of the songs first with the Kathy Santonis? And they did a sound check. He said, no, no, I think we ought to just start taping. Because there's a magic, right, the first time a song comes together. Yeah, there definitely can be. Sometimes it's a train wreck and you have to do a second or third take. But... A lot of times that fir- first take is just magic. Yeah, well, there it was. The Pinkerton album is an interesting period for you, Rivers, because it followed up this huge selling record that has gone on to sell well over three million copies. Put you guys on the map. You talked about being misinterpreted somewhat on that first record in terms of the, the, the way people perceived the band. Pinkerton is regarded as uh, somewhat of a more serious effort. In fact, I've heard some people talk about Rivers' Puccini period. <laughs> for, for this record, this references to Madam Butterfly, things like that. You were listening to a lot of classical music, I, I take it, bringing some of that in. What was your thinking going into making this record? Did you want to distance yourself a little bit from what happened and the way that first album was interpreted? Absolutely. I mean, that's classic second album scenario. First album was real successful, but there's a lot of critics and, you know, the saying that they're, Weezer's just a joke band, it's there's no serious message here. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, very consciously made an attempt to make a very serious album. I started listening to a lot of more um, critically accepted music or acclaimed music like uh, Sebado and Flaming Lips. We got the Flaming Lips engineer to come and help us with Pinkerton. Lyrically, I, I wanted to stay away from anything that, that could be misinterpreted. And I just, you know, in very simple English, talked about what was going on in my life, in my mind, in my heart. And didn't try to use any crazy metaphors or sweaters or mm-hmm. <laughs> homies or Buddy Holly or anything, you know, just very straightforward and hoping that I could be understood that way. Mm-hmm. And yet the album <laughs> was not accepted at all. Um, no. How disappointing was that to you? Yeah, oh, it's so disappointing and, and, and really humiliating hmm. because I felt like I was just clearly sharing the inside of myself and telling my band members and my record company manager and everyone say, just let me share this with the world. And I think this is going to be the right move for everyone. And, and the world said, you know, they just turned their backs on it. So <laughs> yeah, it was, Weezer it was sucks now. Yeah. Well, you know, I think the shorthand history in people's heads is the, the lack of acceptance for Pinkerton. You took some time off. You went to Harvard. <laughs> Hardly a vacation. Was that a direct result you know i mean i know that you wanted to further your education and you were eager to get back to academia but was the lack of uh, the world catching on to pinkerton at first what drove you back well um that's not exactly accurate and i think i know that's the impression out there yeah. but actually i went to harvard before making pinkerton mm. you know i wanted to escape the craziness of of the blue album touring cycle and i wanted to go away and, and just study and work on music and that's when i was writing pinkerton and then Pinkerton came out and didn't do so well. And I actually dropped out of school at that point. Mm. And I, all I wanted to do was come back and make another amazing rock record. I wasn't in school. I wasn't touring with the band. All I was doing was woodshedding and trying to figure out how to make a rock album again. And it took a long time. So that's what that period of inactivity Those was. Those are the dark years. Yeah. Well, okay. you know, the, during those dark years, though, a funny thing happened because I, I had an intern who was about 18, 19 years old at the time. This is like 98 or so, 99. And he was going on and on about this great band, Weezer. He thought Pinkerton was their first album. And he just thought it was the most amazing thing. And at the time, that word emo was going around, emotional punk rock and... In some ways, you became the godfathers of that movement all of a sudden, I'm sure, through no fault of your own. Proto-emo. But you were being adopted by all these teenagers and early 20s kids at that point. Were you aware of that sort of groundswell of underground support that Pinkerton was sort of getting two, three years after the fact? Yeah, I re- well, I remember it was in 1999, and, I, you know, I was living in my room, and I painted all my walls black and just totally by myself, and it was before I unplugged my got rid of my phone though I still had a phone my friend Kevin called me and he had just been out on the road with his band Rydell High and he said you know there's this new movement called emo and like these bands love Weezer and they love Pinkerton especially Mm -hmm. and there's like all these fans out there for you guys now and I I just thought you're just trying to cheer me up dude leave me alone I got to go back to work here (laughs) but then yeah around 2000 
we started getting offers for shows. And these were like big offers, and, and we started playing again. At that point, we realized, holy cow, this, this record does mean a lot to a lot of people out there. I have to say, in Sound Opinion's history of, you know, you listen to the show. At the end of the show, we get all those calls from people telling us where we're wrong about everything. Yeah. We have been getting more hate mail for both championing Ratitude, and I really love the Red album, the, the last self-titled Weezer album, and, and Greg and I were split, but mm-hmm. uh, I got so much crap for that. It seems to be that there's a certain segment devoted, hardcore, yeah. uh, for whom Pinkerton has now, ironically, become sacred text. And anything else you do isn't Pinkerton, therefore we're mad at Rivers and we hate you and we hate everybody who, who <laughs> likes Weezer these days. Yeah, I don't know how to get out of that. It's a, it's a really <laughs> destructive relationship. I don't know how to get out of it. Well, you said you came back and you were surprised. You're playing to these bigger audiences. You know, the last decade has been, I think, where a lot of that comes from. I think there was this built-up appreciation for Pinkerton, like it was, you know, ahead of its time in some ways. But by the time you came back to recording, it seemed like your head was in a different space in terms of the kind of music that you wanted to make and that you wanted to hear. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's only natural. It's like four and a half years later, and I changed fast, man. From album to album, I'm on to something new, and... I am who I am. Yeah, especially in those Home Alone records that you've put out where the liner notes are so fantastic. You talk a lot about the different kinds of music that you've listened to over the years. And I think one of the things that you've sort of come back to is that you want to be part of the the, uh, the conversation in pop music. You never really wanted to be an underground artist. I mean, mm. that was never the goal, right? Well, I'd say maybe on Pinkerton, I, I really wanted that underground acceptance. Mm-hmm. My goal on Pinkerton was to to really be embraced by the cool people, Mm -hmm. for sure. And that changed? I still want to be embraced by the cool people, but I also want to be embraced by the uncool people and everyone else. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Like being embraced. (laughs) (laughs) One of the only downsides, I think, of where Weezer is at today is that we've got to go to an Aragon ballroom or we've got to go to an all-state arena here in Chicago, you know, these giant enormodomes. A lot of critics, these two included, said that certain songs like Hashpipe and Beverly Hills seem to be attempts to write for the arena. Um, I actually, I don't think I write thinking of the room so much. Beverly Hills is just like any other song. I picked up an acoustic guitar and I was really heartbroken over this thing that happened. Uh, went to the opening of the new Hollywood Bowl and was, there's a program there. I was looking through it. I saw this picture of Wilson Phillips and they look really pretty and and kind of like established Hollywood celebrity. And I, I was thinking, man, I've been doing this for eight years. I've been a rock star, and still I don't have, you know, like any celebrity girlfriends. I'm just living in this one-room apartment by myself. What's going on, man? I want to be a star. And I just let it out in that song, Beverly Hills. And there's nothing calculated about it. Look at all those movie stars. They're all so beautiful and clean. The house meets rub the floors, they get the spaces in between. I wanna live a life like that. I wanna be just like a king. Take my picture by the pool, cause I'm the next big thing. say though that song is coming from a personal place and i would say that is one of the big accusations that's leveled at you the last few years is that you're writing for the marketplace in fact i said that on the previous record i thought there's a little bit of pandering almost going on here it's like you're trying to imagine i love that word yeah because a lot of critics were saying the same thing but they didn't they didn't hit the nail on the head and when when you use the word pandering I, i think that really crystallized the whole criticism it's that's what that's what people think i'm doing so how do you address that? You're saying you're not doing that. You're not imagining what the marketplace wants and giving it to them. It's, it's coming from a different place? No, um, I, w- I wouldn't go as far as to say that. I mean, I do think of my audience. I also think of, like, what, what am I trying to say here? And it's finding the language that I can communicate what's going on inside me to a wider audience. So it's still coming from a personal place is what you're saying. Yeah, it's, it starts out from a f- personal place, and then I have to figure out how to communicate it to a, l- a wider audience. Sometimes I don't get it great. Sometimes it comes off like pandering. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's, it's, it's magic. 
the thing that I would say switched it for me on Ratitude was that I did sense, you know, you were still writing these marketplace-type songs, but at the same time, it seemed to be coming from a more personal place, at least the way I interpreted the record. And part of that was the, the sense of melancholy that sort of underpinned some of those songs. Like there was almost a loss of innocence, and you, you were in the head of that teenage boy that you were when you were 16, 17. I know it isn't right. Some critics said I was writing, thinking of teenagers or something, but I was thinking of myself as a teenager. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just like I enjoy reminiscing, and it has a nostalgic feel to me. I don't feel like I'm pandering. Or with heart songs, this is a song you guys have asked me to play today too. I'm just talking about the songs I listened to when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, uh, one of the biggest fights outside of Bruce Springsteen that Greg and I have ever had <laughs> is in the enduring merits of heart songs. Everyone who loves music has that moment when they were 9 or 10 and you hear some song on the radio and for the first time it's not just background noise or something pleasant. It connects with you on an emotional level. You know, it just I was just talking about the songs that were important to me. If, if I was writing for kids today, why would I mention Eddie Rabbit or Gordon Lightfoot? You know? <laughs> yeah. What could be less cool or dated? I mean, no, no offense to those artists. Obviously, I love them. The idea that I had with the Santonis was to do a mashup, to do a medley. And I thought, let's take a song from the very beginning of your career, again, the Blue Album, In the Garage, and put it together with heart songs. Because to me, they're the flip sides of the same impulse. You fall in love with music when you're 10 or 11 sitting in the back of your folks car hearing Eddie Rabbit of all things. And then, you know, as soon as you can, you pick up a guitar and you go out to the garage, you make a god-awful but wonderful noise. Mm. Now we're going to put these two songs together and we're really going to challenge them in the garage from the debut album again, 94, and uh, Heart Songs from the third self-titled Weezer album, a.k.a. the Red Album in 2008 on Sound Opinions. My roommate said, come on and put a brand new record on Had a baby on it, he was naked on it Then I heard the chords broke the chains I had upon me I've got the sentimental sky I've got the plus side of die I've got titty pride And night color too Well you did that for me, yes I do I do
Wow, you guys pulled that off. Yeah, I don't know. You want that to do wasn't any- that bad. That was first time ever a medley of In the Garage and Heart Songs on Sound Opinions with uh, Rivers Cuomo on lead vocals and the Kathy Santonis bringing the rock. That brings us to uh, the last song we wanted to have you play, Rivers. And actually, this is the first song when, when it was suggested that we suggest the set list. We loved it when it appeared last year on Alone to the Home Recordings, and we love it anew on Ratitude. T- tell us about the genesis of Can't Stop Party. Okay. I was a, a fan of Jermaine Dupri's We Belong Together, which was sung by Mariah, Mariah Carey. I think somehow word got out to him, and he said he was a Weezer fan, and we just thought, let's get together and, and try something. So he just sent me this, uh, the first draft of the song Can't Stop Partying. We were in the middle of making the Red Album, actually, when Weezer first heard the demo. It was a str- strange feeling, like, that is so cool, but it's so not us. And mm. So I, for about a year, I just struggled with trying to rewrite it and change the lyrics so it wasn't just about, like, woohoo, hip-hop party, we're going to drink and smoke and everything's going to be awesome. Because mm-hmm. that's not exactly who Weezer is. Everything I tried lyrically was just, it seemed to throw off the fun element of the song. So eventually I struck on the idea of making the music sad and put it in a minor key and making it kind of haunting and beautiful. And that would change the lyrics without even having to change a word. So um, that's how Can't Stop Partying became a Weezer song. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating, too, to hear the transition from the acoustic demo and then the version that Weezer put out, which has more of a dance beat to it. How did you feel about that disco beat? Was that your idea to sort of give it a little bit more emphasis in that direction? Well, we have struggled mightily with this song. It's been a real creative problem for us to work on, and which, to me, those are the best kind of songs. That's where you really grow. We have Jermaine's first hip-hop version of it, and then we have my version on Alone 2, which is acoustic and very haunting. And then Weezer tried to do a rock version. Just wasn't, wasn't as fun for some reason. So then we have we asked Polo to Don to do his production for Ratitude. It's got all these spacey synthesizers in it and stuff, and that sounded amazing to us. And yet, Ratitude came out, and just two days ago, I was back in the studio working on a new version of the song <laughs> <laughs> with live drums and more electric guitar. So, you know, it's still a work in progress wow. in my mind. Well, and now we're going to hear it with the Kathy Santoni's backing you up, which is a whole other... The definitive version. Well, who knows, you know? If this works out, you take them in the studio. And... So the, the burning question is, do I, should I do the Lil Wayne rap or not? I'm, okay. I'm, oh, yeah. I think the, producer, the producers both say yes. On we're, that. We're, Unless yeah. you guys want to do it. Yeah. No, no, we don't, we don't rap.
Can't Stop Parting by Rivers Cuomo and the Kathy Santonis. Mojo Radio, Kaylee Preston back there and Jane Danger. Thank you for working so hard. And do, I hope this was fun for you guys. Yeah, thank you, yeah, thank you guys so much. That worked for Sounds you, Rivers? Awesome. Totally. Not bad, huh, these guys? That was super fun. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on Sound Opinions and for uh, being daring enough to really challenge yourself. My pleasure. <laughs> the moon was shining on the lake at night. The Slayer t-shirt fit the scene just right. To listen to more live Rivers Cuomo songs, visit soundopinions.org. To make a comment on the air, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. You can also email us at interact at soundopinions.org or connect to us on Facebook or Twitter. We'll return to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with a review of the new album by Yesayer. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is the band Yaysayer with a song called Ambling Alp from their second studio album, Odd Blood. Yaysayer, a Brooklyn-based quartet that debuted in 2007 with a record called All Our Symbols. It's uh, basically a project that started out with two boyhood friends, Chris Keating and Annan Wilder, who grew up in Baltimore, formed this band. The premise for the band was, you know, we're going to do this indie rock thing in Brooklyn, just like everybody else seems to be doing these days, but we don't want to sound like any of those other bands. We're going to bring in a whole bunch of different influences. Now, with their second studio album on a much bigger label, the well-respected indie Secretly Canadian, one of the most talked about new releases of 2010. It's called Odd Blood. We're going to review it in a second, but let's hear a track from it first. It's called Matter Red from Yaysayer on Sound Opinions. Go. 
That is a song called Matter Red by the Brooklyn band Yaysayer from their second album, Odd Blood. Greg, talk about delivering the goods on that ever-difficult sophomore album. I think Yaysayer really came up with a record that's every bit as strong as its debut, but in a completely different direction. All Our Symbols was all about the polyrhythms and the the intertwining world beats, right? It was a very drum-centric record. This record is all about the vocal hooks and the intertwining voices and the big pop songcraft and even a little bit of like John Hughes' 1980s synth-pop hooked stuff in there, you know? Uh, They they focused on the songwriting. There's one incredible tune after another, and this record is absolutely making my day. And I tell you, I think it marks this band as every bit the group that TV on the radio and Animal Collective are in terms of being on the cutting edge of great art pop bands in the indie underground today. Well, I think it's a band that is aspiring to uh, that arena level, the way Arcade Fire did on its first couple of albums. It wasn't about... We're going to be this small indie rock band, and we're going to be the coolest band on the block. They want to be big. They want to, they want to play in front of tens of thousands of people and have everybody singing along. And we saw that happen with this band when they headlined at the Pitchfork Music Festival last summer. They were playing some of these newer songs, and people yeah. were singing along with the them. The entire field. And now, it, as a result, they're going to play Lollapalooza this year, you know, to four times as many people. I think there's no doubt with the songs that they've crafted on this album. It's, as you said, it's a much more song-centric, hook-centric record than the debut. They have designed an album that is meant to be played in those kind of settings, and I think it'll do very well. But that said, I think this is a little bit more of an obvious record than the first one, and I don't mean that in necessarily a bad way, but I thought there was a mystery and an allure to that first record that this one somehow misses. And I'm hearing some obvious references to, like, early 80s Depeche Mode. You mentioned the John Hughes-type movies. You know, if they take another step in this direction, I'm really not going to like this band anymore. (laughs) You know? I think they're kind of at the cusp right now where I'm thinking, hey, this is kind of cool, but I hope they don't keep pushing this arena rock thing and they retain those beautiful polyrhythms and those beautiful harmonies that made that first record so great. Yeah, well, I hope the sky doesn't fall tomorrow either, (laughs) Chicken Little, but the record in front of us right now is a double buy it. Now, what do we have on the show next week, Mr. Cott? Next week, Jim, we're going to talk about the intersection of movies and rock just in time for the Oscars with two great movie critics, A.O. Scott, Tony Scott, and Michael Phillips, the co-host of At The Movies. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Mary Gaffney recorded our session with Rivers Cuomo. We have to thank the Chicagoans Kathy Santonis for coming in to be his backing band, named after a character on Full House. If we extend that metaphor, (laughs) Sound Opinions is produced by our ace producers, Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn, who are kind of the Stephanie and the DJ, and our executive (laughs) producer, our fearless leader, the Uncle Jesse of the team, Tori Southside Malatia. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. Bus, bus, line is busy every time that I phone. Bus is the longest talker I ever known. Bus, bus, I've been trying hard to reach him all day. Bus, when I get him, I forget what to say. Should I call the operator? Is the number that he gave me my own? Bus, bus, I've decided that this romance is true. Can it be true that it is ringing? I can believe it. Wait till I say hello. New messages. Hi, my name is Ashley Steers, and I'm calling from Raleigh, North Carolina. And I'm calling because I wanted to share a song that kind of puts me in the mood for Valentine's Day. And that song is by the Apple Feed cast, and it's called A Dream for Us. The reason why I like it is because it starts out with a long instrumental tone with guitars and percussion. And then it comes in the lyrics, because what I feel inside. And it reminds me of all these things that kind of go unsaid between couples and the silence that we spend together. Hello again, guys. This is Andrew from Chicago. My girlfriend Kelly and I appeared on your Rock Doctors episode last week. And uh, just so you know, I'm not a complete rube when it comes to love. I thought I'd give my response for an album that really sets the mood. That comes from Nightmares on Wax, down-tempo group from Leeds, UK. 
and their album Carboot Soul, 1999, it was released. And this album, from start to finish, is built for the bedroom. It's got this slow build-up on the first track. It moves into a nice groove on the second track. Third track's a little bit funky, and it keeps going from there. It plays to all the moods. I highly recommend it. Start to finish, you're going to have a great night. I promise. Take care. Hey, Jim and Greg, it's Trent calling from beautiful Berwyn, Illinois. Just had to comment on your Valentine's show. Uh, my wife and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Jim, I just have to say thank you, thank you, thank you for bringing up the Los Lobos Kiko. I've been a fan of those guys for a long time and never really thought of the Kiko album or those songs in that kind of Valentine's Day context. Also, the Romeo Void, <laughs> that really brought back some early 80s memories and Interestingly enough, doing some research online, found out that they were founded on Valentine's Day in 1979, but the name Romeo Void, meaning lack of romance, I thought was kind of ironic. But again, thanks for the show. We really enjoyed it. Take care. This is Hawk from Austin, Texas. You were doing the Valentine's Day thing, and uh, it made me think of Oh My Love by John Lennon on the Rarities album that Yoko put together a while back. Once Upon a Time. It just sounds like Lynn is just sitting there singing to Yoko, very intimate sounding, personal and heartfelt. Oh, my love, for the first time in my life, my eyes are wide open. Oh, my love, for the first time in my life, How did I happen to be listening to this? It was because of your show last week where Cheap Trick was used and the woman on the show used the word cheesy and I thought, yeah, that's the word for Cheap Trick, except for that one time when they backed Lennon on I'm Losing You on the CD I'm talking about. They sounded great. Made me think, wow, they should have been somebody's backup band instead of having their own career. They would have been great. Thanks, and I really enjoy your show. It makes me think about music and that's the point, right? Bye. No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.